Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3? Let me say once again, we are currently in the first section of Paul's epistle to the Romans, which is the most complete treatise of the gospel of Jesus Christ you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Uh, Paul himself said in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, that's the theme of this book, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we have said repeatedly in this first section which, uh, of the book, which covers uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, a section that we have uh, labeled condemnation. Why do we call it that? Because Paul's endeavoring to prove that the whole world apart from Jesus Christ is lost in sin separated from God and condemned to hell. Now, he does this systematically by first addressing the unrighteous heathen in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. He moves on to the self-righteous hypocrite, or what we have called the moralist, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and then focuses his attention on the ultra-religious Hebrew, or the religionist, but of course, he centers uh, his comments on those in Judaism, the Jewish people, Orthodox Jews back then, chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. As we've already seen, guys, the Jews base their righteousness and salvation on three primary principles or on three basic grounds. First of all, their heritage. They were descendants of Abraham. Number two, they uh, had been given God's law, which God doesn't give to unrighteous people. So the fact that God has entrusted us with his law means we're special. means we're special. He gives us special privileges, and one of those would be he has exempted us from judgment. And then number three, because they were circumcised, uh, which brought them into the covenant God made with Israel, which further exempted them, another layer of protection from God's judgment. Now, as we've already said, we're just reviewing a little bit, these three things, gave them a tremendous feeling of security and safety from God's judgment. And so, in this section, Paul sets out to systematically destroy this false security, which the Jews had kind of wrapped themselves in, peeling off layer after layer of false righteousness and false security in verses 17 to 29 of chapter 2 until as one author put it and i'm quoting his religious countrymen were left naked before god stripped bare of every vestige of religious hope demonstrating that they were no different than the gentiles when it came to god's judgment end quote now he does this by showing them that their heritage can't save them verses 17 to 20 that having the law can't save them verses 21 to 24 and that circumcision won't save them either, verses 25 to 29, which we finished last time. Now, Paul knew that this would immediately lead to a couple of questions from his Jewish audience, questions he anticipated and verbalizes for them in verse 1 of chapter 3, where he said, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Well, Paul's response was immediate and definitive. Verse 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now, the word oracles is the Greek word lagia, a form of lagos, 
which is most commonly translated word in the New Testament. Of course, John opens his gospel by introducing us to the Lagos. In the beginning was the Word, of course, Jesus Christ. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You can check out that first chapter of John's gospel where he kind of sets the stage to present uh, the Messiah, the true Messiah. He starts with an 18-verse prologue uh, to start his gospel because he wants to identify the true Jesus he has in mind. A lot of false Christ running around even in John's day. And so he wanted to, us to have no uh, misunderstandings about who this Lagos really is. He is God. He's always existed. Uh, he was with God since the very, well, since the very beginning. But as far back as you want to go into eternity past and call it a beginning, he was already there. He's always been, all right? He's always been. And at one point, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But Lagos, also Lagia, a uh, form of that. Uh, you know, B.B. Warfield, professor of didactic and polemic theology at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1887 to 1921, did an exhaustive study, very brilliant scholar. He did an exhaustive study of the words uh, Lagos and Lagia, same word, different form, and concluded that they meant, listen, not words in general, I'm quoting him, the divinely authoritative communications from God himself, before which men stand in awe and to which they bow in humility. It would seem clear again that there are no implications of brevity in the term. It means not short, pithy, pregnant sayings, but high, authoritative, sacred utterances from God, end quote. It's a big word. Encompasses the whole totality of God's revelation. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, let me read to you how it's translated in the NIV. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. The NLT translates it this way then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. Now, when we studied chapter 1, we looked at revelations, okay? Christianity claims to be a revealed truth, all right? A revelation is something that comes from God directly. And there's two basic kinds of revelation uh, that God has given the human race. The first is called natural revelation, the second special revelation. Uh, and I'm reviewing from what we studied in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 in particular. But natural revelation is God's revelation of himself in creation. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6 is classic. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows forth his handiwork, right? So that's a classic uh, passage on natural revelation. Special revelation is God's revelation of himself in Scripture. Creation, revelation, and God revealing himself in Scripture. Natural revelation, guys, gives us knowledge about God in general. To look into the creation and acknowledge, yeah, there's a God who made all this. Um, what do I know about him from creation? Well, he exists. He's powerful. The universe is incredibly large, right? He loves beauty and colors, obviously, because everywhere you look in nature, there's beauty, there's colors, right? But 
natural revelation doesn't tell me anything specific about God, just general things. And that's why some have called it general revelation instead of natural revelation. Whereas with special revelation, God gets kind of up close and personal with us by introducing himself to us. He even tells us his name, what he loves, what he hates, and how we might be able to know him personally. It's all involved in special revelation. Now, on Mount Sinai, God gave to his people special revelation in the form of the law, his law. As the Jews received it, revered it, and obeyed it. They prospered and were blessed as he promised they would be in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, and many other places. But as time wore on, the nation became increasingly more and more rebellious and sinful. And so as God had also promised, you walk with me, you obey me, I'll bless you above every nation on the face of the earth. If you forsake me and turn to idols, I will forsake you, and I will remove from you all the prosperity and blessings I had given you in the past. And so that's what happened. As their reverence, and this is the key now. I'm going to give you the key for understanding this passage and for the whole study tonight. As their reverence for God's word decreased, initially, they loved his word, felt special God that God gave them, the Jewish people, his revealed word. Wow, we're special. This is incredible. This is truth in a world of lies. This is light in the midst of darkness, right? And they really cherished it initially. After a while, though, their reverence for God's word decreased. Why is that? I, you know, I don't know what motivates some people. How they could be so on fire when they first get saved, so in love with the word, memorizing scripture at church all the time, soaking it in, listening on radio and back in my day, cassette tapes and different things. And then what happens? Where after a while, they didn't want to really, they're bored. I don't know. But it happened with Israel. As their reverence for God's word decreased, as they no longer embraced a high and lofty view of Scripture, but instead held a very low view, came to hold a very low view of Scripture. Well, the nation diminished more and more. But I want you to understand something. Even as they were diminishing, as the glory of the nation was diminishing, because they were not reverencing His Word, they were not revering it, they were not really obeying it. And as the nation slowly declined, guess what? Their religious fervor didn't fail. Now, that's an interesting phenomenon that we have to keep in mind. People think because I still go to church and I like candles and I pray the rosary and I'm still very involved in my church that I'm good with God, even though they might be living in sin, even though they might be having children out of wedlock or whatever it might be, they still feel because they're going through the motions that they're fine with God. And I, I, as I study Israel, and as they began to decline more and more over the, over the years, and yet their religious fervor in many ways didn't decline. It's an interesting thing. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. I'll show you what I mean. Of all the passages we could look at, this is, the, again, a classic in my mind of this very topic, of how you could be religious and yet not be righteous. 
how you can go to church and yet not really know the living God. Isaiah 1, starting with verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now he's calling Jerusalem Sodom. That's not a good thing. Okay? Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Wow. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? I don't even want you in my house. And remember, they were doing all that God had given them to do. This was Judaism. They weren't coming with a false religion. They were coming with a false heart presenting God true religion. Their hearts were not right. And so God is saying, you know, this makes me sick. Religion without a true relationship is not only meaningless to me, it sickens me. You're mocking me. You're going through the motions thinking that you bring me a bull or a calf or a goat or whatever, and, uh, you know, and then I'm supposed to be satisfied. And you go off and sin some more. That was the idea here. I mean, you know, who, who told you to trample my courts with your sacrifices? Verse 13, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. In other words, keep my word. Do what I've told you to do. Learn to do good, verse 17. Seek justice. Re rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Wow. It reminds us of an event that took place around this time. The kings of Judah just went from bad to worse. Israel, the northern kingdom, they were already taken captive. The southern kingdom had a few good kings and some periods of revival, but they eventually succumbed to sin. Anyways, one of the periods of revival that took place was under a godly king named, named Josiah. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. But Josiah was only eight years old when he ascended to the throne. An eight-year-old can't really run a kingdom, but a godly high priest took him under his wing and taught him about God. So it says that in his eighth year as king, he began to seek the Lord. So he's 16. And one of the things he, he knew enough, of course, uh, the high priest, I forget his name, who raised him, taught him about the only way we can have fellowship with God and a relationship with God is through Judaism. Now, God's talking about the heart in Isaiah. That's true. But if the heart was right, he would have accepted all these sacrifices, and it would have been good. 
So Josiah, as a young man, decides, well, I got to get the temple cleaned up. It was, they were using it for a giant storage shed. I don't know how many years it had been closed down and not being used. The people were that far away from God. Where the worship of God didn't mean anything. Temple worship, last thing on their mind, right? Even though in many ways they were going through different motions. But at this point, the temp temple had not been used for a while. It became a big giant storage shed, a dumping ground. So Josiah decides, well, we got to get the thing cleaned up, reopened, refurbished, got to start the sacrificial, sacrificial system again. So he uh, gets a hold of a, of a high priest named Hilkiah, who uh, enlisted the uh, help of a scribe named Shaphan. And they go into the temple, and they begin to clean it up. And as they're cleaning out the temple, lo and behold, amidst all the junk, they found a copy of the law. They had never seen it before. It's like going into some old church that used to be alive and vibrant, but for many years hasn't been used. And you go in there, start cleaning up, and you find a copy of the Bible. What is this? It was like that. They didn't even know what the, the law of God said. They had wandered so far from him, right? So they started reading it, and they read what God says, Look, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you, if you turn on me and, and, and worship other idols, here's going to be the consequences, the judgments. And they tore their clothes and said, We are in trouble. Quick, let's get this to the king. When Josiah read it, he tore his clothes and wept. And he sent word to a prophetess named Huldah to inquire of the Lord. And she came back and said, God has spoken. This city and this nation is going to be judged. But because you, Josiah, had a tender heart, and when you heard my word, you wept, you tore your clothes, I won't bring the calamity in your day. So there was a revival that took place all the days of Josiah. But when he died an untimely death in battle, it was too little too late to really take hold and last for, you know, when Josiah was gone, the driving force behind this move of God, trying getting people back into, into the house of God and right with God, just a little too, too little too late. And so the people, after Josiah was killed in battle, uh, began to ignore what God had said once again, fell back into idolatry. And this led to the Babylonian captivity, which uh, started in 606 B.C. and ended 70 years later in 536 B.C. Let me say this. Two good things came from the Babylonian captivity. When you're going through something that seems bad, how could God be in this? It's just all bad. God's always doing something where there's a silver lining in there somewhere. Two good things came out of the, Babyl the Babylonian captivity. First of all, it broke them of their idolatry. When they came back from captivity, they never again worshipped idols. That was good. Secondly, it gave birth, the Babylonian captivity, it gave birth to synagogue worship. Synagogue worship, which focused on God's word. Let me just say this to you. While in captivity, 700 miles away from Jerusalem as the crow flies in Babylon, many, not all, but many of the Jews began to have a renewed hunger for the word of God, and their hunger began to grow and grow dramatically for some of them. This was due in large part to them being so far from Jerusalem and the temple. The temple had been destroyed anyways. Uh, it stood for another 20 years. So about 586, the Babylonians came and just wiped it out 
leveled it, and that was it. So now they're, they're now they're in Babylon. There's no temple. They can't bring sacrifice. They can't practice Judaism. Their religion. What did it do? Because their religion was stripped away, which was a problem for a lot of them, because they were leaning on the religion and ignored the relationship with God it should have brought. But now they had no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices were being offered. How were they going to draw close to God? They began to take his word and focus on that. They began to focus all their attention on the word of God. They zealously began to read and study it. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, that was a good thing, right? Yeah, many ways it was a good thing. But it led some of them into another error. Instead of taking the word of God lightly, as their forefathers had done, they now began to take God's word legalistically. Legalistically. You see, the Pharisees got their start around this time. The Pharisees were an ultra-conservative sect of Judaism that believed every word of the law was inspired by God. That was good. But they began to worship the words on the page instead of the one who actually gave the words on the page. But they believed every word of the law was inspired by God. And as, as such, they made the mistake of emphasizing, listen, the letter of the law, but often neglected the spirit of the law. And as we're going to see, this was something that Paul had to constantly correct in his epistles when mentioning the Jews and how they mishandled God's law. Not the least of which was the two final verses in chapter 2 that we looked at last time. Let's read them. Romans, 8, Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, where Paul said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, not in the written words on a page, the letter, the law, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Quickly turn over to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6, where Paul said, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. The law of Moses, the old covenant, was now replaced with the new covenant. Uh, made us ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law of God kills. Now, there are some people that interpret this. The letter is the Word of God. The Spirit gives life. Churches that put too much emphasis on the Bible, that kills people. You have to have the Spirit moving, right? And so some of those churches get pretty crazy. But no, Paul is talking about the Old Covenant as opposed to the New Covenant. Old Covenant based on the law, that killed. What do you mean? It was supposed to kill my efforts to be righteous in my own strength by keeping the law. It condemned, it killed. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit of God through, through Jesus Christ in the gospel, right? So we understand that. But here's the thing. So even though, and I'm thinking of the Pharisees primarily, because they were the ones who really epitomized this, but when... They started as a sect, and they were ultra-conservatives. That was good. You know, they didn't try to read things into the Word. They just wanted to study what God had put on the page. So that was good. 
But in time, I'm not sure how it happened, but in time, they began to have more reverence for the rabbinical traditions. Now, these were man-made traditions. They began to have more reverence for the rabbinical traditions rather than God's written word. Often, in fact, negating or canceling out altogether the word of God by their traditions. Turn to Matthew 15. Jesus talks about this very thing. Matthew 15, verses 3 to 6. Because they were always holding up to traditions of the fathers. Traditions of men, their traditions. So Jesus said in verse 3, He answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. So here's the way you got around helping your mom and dad. They're elderly. They need help financially. And Pharisees often did well for themselves. So instead of giving mom and dad a few bucks every week for groceries and to help them get through these tough years as they've gotten older. No, what they did was they said, well, mom and dad, I wish I could help you. But you see, I've dedicated all my money to God. It's all Corbin dedicated to God. I can't give to you what belongs to God. See, but that teaching, dedicating their money to God, they could still use their money for themselves. They could still keep it and use it for them, but technically it was dedicated to God. Verse 6, then he need not honor his father or mother. You know, you've got, you figured out a loophole. Sure, some of these guys were lawyers. You figured out a loophole. To get around the law. You have, you have kept the letter of the law, so to speak, but you have violated the spirit of the law. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Now, I bring all of this out because the different points of view and attitudes that the Jews had about God's word throughout the Old Testament period and into Paul's day parallels quite a bit the points of view and attitudes that many religious churchgoers have today in the New Covenant. Let me just say this, guys. There are really only three basic positions that a person can hold to with regard to the Bible. Here they are. Number one, the Bible is the Word of God in its entirety, from cover to cover, inerrant and absolute in the truth it presents. Number one. Number two, The Bible is a collection of ideas, stories, myths, and legends. The words of mere men, which might, you know, inspire us at times, but words that are not themselves inspired by God. And then number three, the Bible is a combination of the two. So the first position reflects the classic evangelical view of the scriptures, what we call a high view of scripture. The second position reflects the classic liberal view of the Bible, a low view of Scripture. It's not really God's Word. It's not infallible. It's not inerrant. It's a collection of stories and myths and legends. Okay, you can read them and you might get blessed here and there, but you can't take them as the Word of God. That's the classic liberal view, a low view of Scripture. And then the third position is a hybrid of the two. And the one that modern evangelicalism is wrestling with more and more today. Let's call it a compromised view of Scripture. Now, guys, we could easily spend, and you know me, I could do it. We could easily spend several weeks looking at each one of these positions. 
But it's not my intention to do a deep dive on this subject. I'll let you do that if you are so inclined. Let me just say that the liberal view will keep a person from God. Why get involved with a book that's just a bunch of legends and stories and myths and whatever? Why waste my time? Not from God. It's not error-free. Why waste my time? So the liberal view will keep a person from God. The compromise view might lead a person to Christ, but, listen, will never allow them to grow in Christ. It's going to stunt their spiritual development. They might get saved, but they'll never grow. Only the classic evangelical position, a high view of Scripture, will allow a person to come to know Jesus, to grow in their faith, and experience the victory, the fruitfulness, and the blessings that God desires to give each of his children. The problem is never with God. He's promised us certain things. Whether we inherit and walk in those things, those blessings, it's up to us. How much are we going to embrace what God has said and believe it and walk in the, those truths? It really troubles me that the number of people who claim to be born-again Christians, and I don't know their hearts, I'm just assuming they are, but the number of people who claim to be born-again Christians who come to church, hear the word of God taught week after week, but then go ahead and make important decisions. I'm talking about important decisions. Who to marry, um, I don't know, where to live, what job to take. They come to church, they hear the word of God taught week after week, but then they go out and make important decisions based on their feelings and not based on what God has said in his word. You can't marry that unbeliever. You're a Christian. Oh, but I believe God brought us together. I believe, even though in the Bible he says, I'm not to marry an unbeliever, I believe he's told me it's okay for me. As a Catholic, we used to call that special dispensation. <laughs> special dispensation means I'm going to violate what God has said and make myself feel good about it, justified. Okay, that's all that means. Let me read you verses 1 and 2 again. I'll kind of paraphrase. What advantage then has the Jew, or the Christian? Or what is the profit of circumcision, or water baptism? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them, the Jews of the Old Covenant, Christians of the New, were committed to them the oracles, or the Word of God. Guys, look, the Jews back then only benefited from God in their relationship with God as they embraced his word, walked in his truth, and obeyed what he said. That was the only, just having, we said last time, they thought because they had possession of the law, that somehow was God's way of saying, you now are going to get special blessings. No, no, no. As James said, it's not enough to be hearers of the word or possessors of the word. You have to be doers of the word. So a lot of Christians that go to church and hear the Bible taught, good churches, hear the Bible taught, but they don't go out and do anything with it, have deceived themselves into thinking, well, I went to church, I did that, it's all God wants. I went to church, I heard the, heard the sermon, it's all I need. Fooling themselves. James says deceiving themselves. Jews back in the Old Covenant, Christians today, what benefit is to be a Christian in this world? A lot. Water baptized, does that mean anything? Sure, if you're truly saved. 
you make a public declaration of your conversion and your faith by getting water baptized, identifying with what Jesus did in the Jordan? Sure. But that's just rituals. They're beautiful if you cling to the reality behind the ritual. Like a wedding ring is a beautiful symbol of marriage. If you're faithful and you love your spouse and so on. But without that, the symbol, the ring is nothing. It's not only meaningless, it's hurtful. Because it reminds your spouse every day that you're not faithful to them. You, you don't love them. You know, you're not loyal and so on. So, yeah, I mean, being saved, being a Christian, going through the ritual of water baptism, great. As long as the reality is there. I, I've given my heart to Christ. I love him with all my heart. He's made me a new creation. I want to live for him now. I, I want to tell the world about him. Wonderful. But again, whether we're talking about the Jews back in the Old Testament or Christians living today, the only benefit from the Bible is if a person receives it as it is in truth, the very word of God, if they receive it as the inspired, living, and powerful word of God and obey what it says. Can I deviate the rest of our time this evening to kind of get off into a, like a little parallel study outside of Romans, but and we'll come back to Romans 3 the week after the week of fasting and prayer. But I just felt like it's been, it's been a while since I've kind of presented this little message. And I've tailored it down a little bit to uh, so that it relates to what we're talking about. Again, the issue is the Word of God. Do we believe it's the Word of God? Do we, do we revere it? Do we hold it to our hearts and obey what it says? It's the only way we're going to be blessed. So why should we value the Word of God? We should value it because of four primary reasons. These are just primary, basic reasons. Okay, I'll give them to you. won't spend a lot of time on these. Why? Because first of all, it's a timeless book. A timeless book. And I'm not going to have you turn to these too many. You can write them down. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord. Verse 152. Concerning your testimonies, your word, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Now, guys, other books come and go. Sometimes they go out of print, never to return again. Sometimes, especially with textbooks, they're constantly being revised and updated. Aren't you glad you have never walked into a Christian bookstore yet where you see the Bible revised and updated? Well, actually, let me stop. They, they kind of have done that, you know, with different versions where they've kind of tailored it to more of a feminine position or whatever. So, yeah, that goes on. But we know that the Word of God is eternal because it comes from God who is himself eternal, right? The Word of God lasts forever. You know, Voltaire, the famous French atheist, philosopher, historian, and satirist, he was a quick-witted guy with a sharp tongue. He ripped people to shreds, especially he loved putting down Christians. He died in 1778, but before he died, he made an infamous prediction. He predicted that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the earth. 
That was his prediction. Because, you know, the Enlightenment. I mean, religion, the Bible, that was for superstitious, ignorant people. We're, we've moved beyond it. You know, science, medicine, all this stuff, right? The Bible's not going to last 100 years after, uh, after my death. Ironically, 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used his own press to crank out thousands and thousands of copies of the Bible for distribution. Now you tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Amen. Of course, it reminds us of what Peter said. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 5. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. One of my favorite quotes on the subject comes from a man named H.L. Hastings, talking about the eternality of the Bible forever. He said, and I quote, Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels with all their assaults make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would make on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his domain, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages. But the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die, and the book still lives, end quote. Awesome. So we should value God's word because it's a timeless book. We should also value it, number two, because it's a truthful book. In a world of lies, the Bible is a beacon of truth. Psalm 119, verse 142, and Psalm 119 is all about the Bible, the Word of God, from start to finish. But Psalm 119, verse 142, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Verse 151, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Again, verse 160, The entirety of your word is truth. Truth. It doesn't just contain the Word of God, it is the Word of God. There are organizations out there, Christian denominations, that believes the Bible contains the Word of God, but is not the Word of God in its entirety. So now it's up to you to tell me what part of the Bible is the Word of God and what part is not. So now man is sitting in judgment of God's Word. Instead of the Word of God in its entirety sitting in judgment of us, you hold to that position, I'm telling you, you'll never be all that you, God wants you to be as a Christian. Because how do you know if you're reading something, well, maybe this isn't God's Word. Maybe this part of the Bible is really not inspired by God. I don't know how you function. Either the Word of God stands together or it falls apart. It's that easy, that simple. Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. Guys, today the Word of God has come under attack like never before. It's because Jesus is coming back soon and the devil is ramping up his attacks. The Word of God brings life and Satan is all about death. 
And so he is attacking God's word like never before from both inside and outside of the church. And as we said earlier, many are attacking it through a direct frontal assault by simply denying it is actually the word of God. Again, they say it's a collection of man-made myths, allegories, and moral principles all brought together under a single cover, which we can learn from, but let's not get crazy about it, is not to be taken as the inerrant divine Word of God. One of our Calvary pastors was teaching at a pastor's conference years ago I was at. He was telling this story. He was up there on a Sunday morning teaching the Bible. He didn't know this because he couldn't hear it, but somebody told him afterward. As he's teaching the Bible, one of the guys, I guess a new person with his wife was there, he looks over at his wife and says, good heavens, he takes this thing literally. He got back to the pastor and he said, well, of course we take it literally. How else should we take it? Of course, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture, not most, not, you know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, means God breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God, woman of God, of course, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Number three, we should value God's word, the Bible, because not only is it a timeless book and a truthful book, it is a transforming book. One of my favorite stories, true story, one of the most dramatic examples of the Bible's divine ability to transform lives involved is a famous story of mutiny on the bounty. We've all heard that story, right? Maybe you've seen the movie. To me, it's one of the most dramatic stories on this topic, how God's work can transform lives. Let me read it to you. One historian puts it this way. He said, and I quote, Most of us have heard the story of the mutiny on the bounty, but few of us have heard how the Bible played a very vital part in that historical event. The bounty was a British ship which set sail from England in 1787 bound for the South Seas. The idea was that those on board would spend some time among the islands transplanting fruit-bearing and food-bearing trees and doing other things to make some of the islands more more habitable. After 10 months of voyage, the bounty arrived safely at the island of Tahiti, and for six months the officers and the crew gave themselves to the duties placed upon them by their government. When the special task was completed, however, and the order came to embark again, the sailors rebelled. <laughs> they had formed strong attachments to the native girls, and the climate and the ease of the South Sea Island life was much to their liking. The result was mutiny on the bounty, and the sailors placed Captain Bly and a few loyal men adrift in an open boat. Captain Bly, in an almost miraculous fashion, survived the ordeal, was rescued, and eventually arrived home in London to tell his story. An expedition was launched to punish the mutineers, and in due time, 14 of them were captured and paid the penalty under British law. But nine of them had gone to another island, call, another distant island called Pekaren Island. There they formed a colony. Perhaps there has never been a more degraded and debauched social life than that of that colony. They learned to distill whiskey from a native plant, and the whiskey, as usual, along with other bad habits, led to their ruin. Disease and murder took the lives of all the native men in all but one of the white men. His name was Alexander Smith. 
He found himself the only man on the island, surrounded by a crowd of women and half-breed children. Alexander Smith found a Bible among the possessions of a dead sailor. The book was new to him. He had never read it before. He sat down and read it through. He believed it, and he began to appropriate it. He wanted others to share in the benefits of this book, so he taught classes to the women and children. As he read to them, he taught them the scriptures. In 1808, 20 years after the mutiny on the bounty, a ship from Boston discovered the community on Pacaran Island. When the captain of the ship returned to America, he took news of the only mutineer to survive and of what he called, and I'm quoting him, the most perfect Christian society that he'd ever seen, unquote. A miniature utopia was discovered. The people were living in decency, prosperity, harmony, and peace. There was nothing of crime, disease, immorality, insanity, or illiteracy. How was it accomplished? By the reading, the believing, and the appropriating of the truth of God, end quote. Wow. The Bible has the power to transform lives. That's true. If read and applied. And so, guys, because the word of God should be valued because it's a timeless book. It's a truthful book. It's a transforming book. And therefore, it is a treasured book. Or it should be. Again, Psalm 119, verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Guys, the word of God is valuable. It's valuable. But it will only benefit you if you treasure it. And it will only make your life rich if you obey it. And I'm speaking of an inward richness, a spiritual richness, not necessarily a physical richness. Although God may bless you financially, that's not the main point. You know, one of my favorite old Baptist preachers, Vance Havner, if you ever get a chance to go online, listen to some of his sermons, he was great. He's a good old boy from down south, just a real, you know, homespun, homey, a uh, guy just rich with wisdom, had a way of turning phrases to just, you laugh, you know. Just, he, he was great. But he relates a true story. Vance Havner said, and I quote, I have read that years ago in that part of Africa where diamonds in the rough were plentiful, a traveler chanced on boys playing. So they're in the streets just playing. Closer investigation revealed they were playing with marbles. A little closer examination, they were playing marbles with diamonds. Havner said, God forgive us today that we handle his treasures as though they were trifles and the coinage of the eternal as though it were play money. It is no time to play marbles with diamonds, end quote. Boy, that is truer today than it's ever been. Let me end with a true story. Again, it's one of my favorite stories from the life of one, one of the men that I can't have enough respect for. It comes from the life of Robert Dick Wilson, a man who truly treasured God's word. I'll quote to you from one biographer who wrote about 
his life. He said, and I quote, Robert Wilson was born in 1856. He graduated from Princeton University at the age of 20 and went on to earn a PhD. He then did further postgraduate work in Germany for two years, where he was exposed to the School of Higher Criticism. This was a group of would-be uh, scholars who didn't believe the Bible was really the Word of God and went to great lengths every chance they got to rip it apart as nothing more than fairy tales and myths. After attending a class where the Bible, the Old Testament, was ripped apart by one of these so-called professors of higher criticism, one day after a class where the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, had been ridiculed as untrustworthy, young Wilson, who was 25 years old at the time, knelt by his bed and prayed, Lord, if you will give me another 45 years, I will devote the first 15 years to learning every language the Bible was written in. I will spend the next 15 years studying the Old Testament itself, and the last 15 years I will spend presenting my findings for the truthfulness of your word. God answered Robert's prayer and gave him another 49 years, during which he mastered 45 languages. He not only became an expert in Hebrew and its kindred tongues, but he learned all the languages into which the scriptures had been translated down to the year A.D. 600. While he was still in college, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. He had memorized the entire New Testament in Hebrew, along with portions of the Old Testament, and it was said that he could recite the New Testament in Hebrew from memory without missing so much as a syllable. He studied the text of the Old Testament, looking at every consonant. You remember the Hebrew Old Testament has no vowels. It's all consonants, 250,000 of them, and he studied each of them. I went online today to see if I could get some more information about it. And one of his biographers said, it didn't matter how long it took him. If he wanted to prove something about the Bible, he would study and study and study. Sometimes months to prove one point. That's how tenacious he was. That's how committed he was. Obviously, that's how much he valued the Word of God. He made a thorough scientific investigation of the Old Testament text as compared to other writings of antiquity. Dr. Wilson then spent his remaining years writing down and teaching the results of his long research. He became the leading professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, which has been completely taken over by woke liberal professors. But back in these days, it was good stuff. Had some really good men. But he came to, became the leading professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, where he spent many years defending the Bible against all comers, as well as turning out students that had a strong foundation for their faith who trusted and treasured the word of God who knows how many lives he impacted how many churches were started how many missionaries went out how many souls were saved because of this one man's love for God's word the story is told that at the end of one of his classes a student raised his hand and asked the old scholar Dr. Wilson what is the greatest truth you have ever learned in all your studies of the Bible? With tears streaming down his face, he said, The greatest truth I have ever learned is this, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Guys, that is the greatest truth in the treasure trove of God's word, that God loves you. 
You don't have to be a brilliant theologian to understand that. It is at once profoundly simple, yet simply profound. A little child can understand God loves you. Some of the greatest theologians cannot really tell you why God loves us. I mean, they can give you answers. But really, why does this being, who needs nothing or no one to be complete, why would he go through all the trouble to gather to himself a people out of a world of fallen sinners, knowing he would have to die for them because sinners can't die for sinners? He loved us so much that he became one of us, walked among us, and went to the cross in our place. Three days later, later rose from the dead, and now holds his hands open, those male-scarred hands, and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Let me just end with this. When you read your Bible, if you want to get the most out of it, yeah, treasure it, of course. Believe it is in truth the Word of God. That's, of course, true. But read it as God's love letter to you. Remember we talked about it's all about relationship? Don't make it about religion. Make it about relationship. And when you read the Bible with that mindset, it becomes God's love letter to you. And as you read it, let the love of God for you be the core, the core principle in your relationship with Him. And then as you fall in love with Him more and more, by staying in the Word and keep drawing close to Him, as you fall in love with him more and more, take his love out to this lost and dying world. Because this is a world that needs to know God loves them. How could God love me? I don't know. I don't know how God could love me. I just know he does. That's all I can tell you. I just know special revelation tells me he loves me. Don't try to pick it apart. Don't try to psychoanalyze the, just accept it. But it will never happen if you don't treasure his word. If you don't embrace, the Jews fell in love with God's word initially, but over the years they began to move away from it. They got into the traditions of the fathers. We today are getting into the psychology of the experts. And if you believe God's word is really his word, you're laughed at. Not in every church circle. This one believes in God's inerrant, infallible word. But guys, we're in the minority now. In Christendom, global Christendom, we're in the minority. As I said Sunday, only 22% of professing Christians believe the Bible is really God's inspired word. Three quarters of professing Christians don't believe God's word, the Bible is God's word. No wonder the church is in such a bad place. The only way we can be all that God wants us to be, it has to start with a relationship with Jesus, but that comes by hearing the gospel, which is the word of God. This is what Paul's trying to drive home in Romans. The most complete treatise of the gospel of Jesus Christ you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Because as we accept the gospel and open our heart to Jesus, the word of God comes where? Inside our hearts. And then we feed on it every day, and we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it will impact our life in a way that, well, as we've experienced, 
we can only have imagined. And it will keep impacting our life as we go forward. And as the devil ramps up his attacks more and more, he is going to try to pry from our hands the Word of God because we're not going to always understand what God's doing. And some are going to doubt whether he's even real. This is the time when we have to be more committed to the truth of God's Word than ever before. And may God help us. What benefit is there being a Christian? What purpose does water baptism serve? Much in every way. But you've got to believe what God has said in His Word. And when you do, trust that He'll give you the grace every day to live it and to keep walking in that truth. Father, we thank You. We thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Your Word is truth. We praise You, Lord, for loving us so much that You've given us Your truth. In fact, You became the truth that walked among us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through you. And give us grace, Lord, to keep walking in your truth and keep cherishing it and sharing it. We just thank you, Lord. Give us grace in these last days to keep feeding on your word. Give us grace to never doubt. Give us strength to live in this dark world as lights. We just thank you, Lord. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.